We've been in this uh, gospel for uh, for much of the summer, and if you've been with us at all, you might remember that when we came to Acts chapter 11, uh, there Luke uh, begins to describe the expansion of the church into Asia. And this is really the fulfillment of what took place in Acts chapter 1 and 2, where Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem and then you will be filled with the Spirit from on high and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. And this is what the book of Acts is about. It's about how that spreading of the gospel takes place. When we come to Acts chapter 11, we're introduced to a, a, a church that is brand new in the city of Antioch, Syria. And a group of unnamed evangelists um, feels the call of God to go to that city and over the course of about 18 months, this amazing church is established in, in that particular locale. And as I mentioned, as we um, had George and Marge up here, they became a sending church. And they sent out Paul and Barnabas, who undertook the, sort of the first missionary journey uh, of the church. And they went uh, at first to a place called Cyprus, which was a tiny little island. And they went from one end of the island to the other end of the island, uh, speaking to the people about the good news of the gospel. When they finally got to the end of Cyprus, they then went to another place called Antioch, but this time it was in Turkey, uh, Antioch Poseidon. And when they came into Turkey, they really found this now to be going to the ends of the earth. While there was a local synagogue there, um, there was really uh, no recognition of the God of the Bible. There was no understanding of the God that the Jewish people knew so well. And so they were really entering into uh, foreign territory as they took the gospel into that particular area. And that's where we pick up the journey now, because as they went through that city, about the end of their time in that city, the people really got ticked off at them and were, were not happy that they were sharing the gospel, particularly the Jews. And so they stirred up the crowds to drive them out of town. And so as Paul and Barnabas were driven out of town, they shook the dust off their feet and they said, okay, we're going to go to a bunch of new cities. And so we're looking at three of the cities to which they went to this morning. And uh, as I say, this compromises or, or um, comprises the first missionary journey. I'm going to read the first um, uh, uh, section which deals with Iconium in Acts chapter 14, uh, starting at verse 1, and then we'll just read each section as we come along. But uh, hear the word of the Lord and listen carefully to what they encountered as they went from town to town and uh, listen for prominent phrases and reactions uh, that come up. We start at verse uh, 1 of chapter 14. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to his word, the word of his grace, by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The people of the city were divided, though. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Father, we thank you now for our opportunity to come before you and into his word. And Father, we pray that you would guide our thoughts and um, our minds and our hearts as we together reflect on this passage of your word. Father, there is always something for us to learn, something for us to grow in, an admonishment that we need to receive, an exhortation that we need to take heart to. 
And so, Father, whoever we are and wherever we have come from this morning, all under the preaching of your word here today, we submit to the living word of God, the eternal word of God. And we ask that you might make us different people as a consequence. Father, I do want to pray for Georgina, uh, even this morning and the passing of her brother last night. I pray for her and the family as they grieve this loss. And that together as they now walk through this valley of the shadow of death, that they would know the presence of God even at this time of despair. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Iconium is a city that is about a 100 miles east of Pisidian Antioch. Today it is still in Turkey. It's one of the, it's of the three cities. It's the only one that still is there. And it's the city of Konya, which is the seventh largest city in Turkey. It's approximately a million people or so uh, large. When Paul and Barnabas arrived there, it was predominantly a Greek city. But it did have a local synagogue. And as was their regular custom, when they came to a new city, they went to the synagogue first. And they spoke the gospel with such power and with such clarity that it says there that many of the Jews and the Greeks believed. The power of God was evident through the gospel that was proclaimed. But that's not the end of the story, as Paul Harvey might say. Now for the rest of the story. Because immediately we read that um, there was this group of people that rose up against them. And they stirred up this massive dissension and division to the word, the word of God and the gospel that had been proclaimed. Loved ones, I think one of the first things that we need to recognize, even from this passage, and I've mentioned it before, is that there is always going to be a mixed reaction to the gospel. That is a biblical reality. When you take the word of God and the gospel message to people, some will respond and some will be massively opposed to what you are saying. Initially, a number of the Jews here responded with great belief, but clearly there was a whole bunch who didn't. It says here they refused and they poisoned the minds of others. They, they turned their thinking away from the word of God and against Paul and Barnabas. And a little bit later, I think it's verse 4, it says that the city was divided. There were those who were for the Jews and against Paul, and there were those who, who were for Paul and for the gospel. Why such extraordinary extremes in the gospel? What is this about the truth of Christ that causes such different and varied reactions? The short version of that is because this is spiritual reality. And whether we think about it often or not, we don't just live in a physical world. We live in a spiritual world. And there is a spiritual battle that is taking place all around us. And at the heart of that spiritual battle is the truth about Jesus Christ and our need for him. And so in the midst of that battle, when that truth is presented, there is hostility and opposition to that truth. A little bit of a longer version, though, of why there might be this varied response to the gospel comes to us from Jesus. And I'm sure many of you here have heard about the parable of the sower and the seed. I'll give you Paul's sort of Coles note version of the parable of the sower and the seed. There was a farmer who went out and he had a bunch of seed to plant. And as he went out to harvest and he stuck his hand in his seed bag, he would scatter the seed abroad. And as he was scattering the seed abroad, some of that would fall on a well-worn path. And as it landed on that path, before it ever had the opportunity to go underneath and, and get ground over top or to be nurtured by rain, birds would come along and they would snatch that seed up and they would eat it. And it was obviously unfruitful. 
But then Jesus said, but uh, as he was doing this, he would also throw some seed and it would land on rocky soil. And rocky soil often is soil that contains thorns. And as that seed would land in that uh, soil that was uh, rocky, um, it would uh, um, get root a little bit, but uh, it wouldn't go down deep because there wasn't a depth of soil. And as soon as the first really scorching hot day would come along, it would just dry and sap the strength out of that little plant because there was no uh, energy and no nutrients coming up from the soil into the plant. Um, uh, then there was a, a bunch of seed that as he threw it out, it fell on thorny ground. And uh, as it landed in that thorny ground, it found some good ground and some soil and it put down some roots, but eventually it couldn't compete with the thorns around it. My wife and I went out blackberry picking, um, I don't know, a week ago. We didn't really get any because they were all small and I was grumpy. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but I did look around as I was looking at all these blackberries and all I could see was blackberries because everything else that had tried to grow was absolutely overcome and overrun by those blackberries. The thorns had overtaken even the grasses underneath it. And so Jesus said, that's what happened. Sometimes you throw the seed and it fell on the thorny ground. But then there was also some seed that um, as it was thrown, it would land on, 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 uh, um, uh, on, good ground, on good soil. And as it landed on that good soil, it found a little bit its way down into the soil and it was watered and the roots went down deep and over time it grew up and uh, it produced. It produced a, um, a fruit. It says 60, 90, and 100 fold. And I think any of us who, who, who have insight into, into farming or gardening uh, understand that parable. But Jesus took that parable and he gave it a spiritual application. And the spiritual application that Jesus gave goes something like this. Whenever we share the gospel with somebody, the gospel is like that seed. And we scatter that seed abroad. And sometimes we share the gospel with somebody who has a, a terribly hard heart. And when the truth of the gospel lands in that person's heart, there is not even a crack where the gospel can take root. And he says what happens is Satan immediately comes along and he snatches the gospel off of that heart so it doesn't even have time to take root. Satan is the master of distraction. Uh, I have worked for a long time and I continue to work on reducing the amount of distractions that I cause you. There was a time when I used to play with my keys in my pocket. Um, and uh, over the years, I would have people come to me and they say, would you stop that? It just drives me crazy. I remember one time that I preached a whole sermon with my collar up. And at the end of the service, some guy came to me and he flipped my collar down. And he said, I couldn't think of anything else but your upturned collar. I had another lady after the second service tell me, she says, you know what? I remember sitting in service one day and there was a guy beside me clicking his pen. And it's all I could think about all service long was this guy clicking his pen. And I couldn't hear the service. What happens is... Satan is a master at using those distractions to before you even leave this building, he has ripped that seed from your heart. That's, beloved, why it is so important that we, even as a congregation, as we gather, we gather on time. We reduce our idiosyncrasies and the things that might distract people beside us, in front of us, or behind us, so that we are, our actions are not used to steal the word of God away from somebody's heart. 
But then Jesus goes on and he says, sometimes you share the gospel and, and some people really, they, they appear to accept it enthusiastically. And the seed, it seems to come down and it, it, it gets a little bit of a root. And you think, wow, they, they've, they've understood and they've embraced Christ. But anyone here who has ever walked with Christ for any length of time knows that it is not a rosy road. And if anybody tells you that you just accept Christ and all your problems will go away, they are not telling you the truth. Often when you accept Christ, your life becomes more difficult because you become aware of the spiritual battle. And so what happens is to these people is that they say, oh, that's not what I bargained for. I thought that when I became a Christian, my marriage would become perfect. Or I, I thought that when I became a Christian, my bank account would blossom. Or the last thing I thought is that when I became a Christian, um, that I would be challenged at work to, to do something unethical. And if I didn't do it, I would lose my job. No, I can't handle this Christian stuff, this Bible stuff. I'm backing off. And they fall away. Sometimes you share the gospel with people. And it looks like, wow, they have embraced Christ. And there is, there is, there's this initial a flourish of growth. And they come to church. They might come to church for a year, two, three, four, five years. And, and they get involved and they participate in what happens. But then one day you notice, hmm, I haven't seen so-and-so around lately. You don't do anything about it. And, and maybe a month later, you call them up and I haven't seen you, you know, in church for about six months. Ah, oh, you know, you know, I, I just got this new promotion at work and and uh, it's just demanding all of my time. And when Sundays come, it's the only day that I've got. And so I, I just need to be at home looking after stuff at home. Or, you know, I, I just got an inheritance and I got to manage my money now. And and, you know, it just occupies all of my time. And when it comes to, to church, I, I, you know, I just can't do it. Or, you know, my family's growing. We just had our third child. And, and, you know, we've got some in sports and we've got some there. And, you know, when that's all done, then we'll get back to church. Or, you know, I just bought this this new toy. And, and the only time I get to use it is in the summertime. And so, you know, I, I know it takes us away from church. But, you know, we'll maybe be back in the fall. Jesus says that's the cares of life that come and overtake. And before long, they have overtaken that seed. They have crushed out the nutrients, and they no longer are amongst us. And then Jesus says there is a time when people hear the word of God, and they find soft, well-prepared soil, and the seed lands, and it grows, and it produces fruit. Loved ones, I think this parable illustrates the huge response to the word of God. And there are, uh, from my reading, and I'm not a mathematician, it suggests to me that uh, 25% of the time people respond to the gospel on a good day. To some, the gospel is light and life. To other, the gospel is offensive and constricting. And in between, there is a whole bunch of other pressures that bear down upon the truth. And so if there isn't a mixed reaction to our presentation of the gospel, then I wonder if the gospel is part of our presentation. Because this is what we ought to expect. The gospel requires a choice. It requires a decision. Choose this day whom you will serve. Paul, preaching to one of the leaders, Festus, Festus says to him, you have almost persuaded me to believe. For other people, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their eyes so they cannot see the truth. And so all of those things come to bear upon us when we present the gospel. So it doesn't surprise me that there is a mixed reaction. It doesn't surprise me that sometimes we, we have um, acceptance and other times we have stiff opposition. 
how ought we to respond when it's opposition? How ought we to respond when people really fight back at us and in fact become forceful towards us? I don't think there's one biblical answer. I, I could probably preach a whole series, a whole sermon on the different ways that we might respond. But here we have one illustration. And it's simply this, that we should not barge down a door that God has not opened. We've already seen this um, in Acts chapter 13. When they were um, pressed by the city and about to be persecuted, it says they shook the dust off their feet and they left the city. Here we read in verse 6 that when they learned of this attempt by the city to mistreat them and to stone them, that they fled and they went to Lystra. Loved ones, if you share the gospel with somebody and their initial reaction is hostility towards you, I don't think it's always biblically the, the obligation that you have to go back the next day and, and take a shot in the face because you want to keep presenting the gospel. Sometimes that is God's way of saying, you know what? It's time to leave that person for now. Go to the next person. Pray for them, but go to the next person. I have somebody who's going to come in a month or in, in two months, and they're going to share the gospel with them again. This is not the time for you to get beat up over sharing the gospel. And so we see that Paul and Barnabas realized that this was not a place to dig in their heels and fight for the gospel. But rather, now was the time for them to leave this particular city of Iconium and go on to Lystra. And so they go on to Lystra, and here we find the story of Lystra. And it's a a different story altogether. He says, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. He sprang up, and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles and Barnabas uh, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are of men are of like nature with you. We, should, we have brought you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. Lystra was about 18 miles southwest of Iconium. The tale of this city is encapsulated around the healing of this man who had been crippled from birth. I want us to understand this morning again that the gospel is just not about souls. The gospel is about all of us. It's about our body and our soul. Sometimes we hear the the word shalom. Shalom is a word that means may you in all facets of your life experience peace. Mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And here I think we see again the reminder that God, loved ones, is not just concerned about bringing salvation to our souls, 
that he is concerned about bringing salvation to our bodies. And that's our great hope, is it not? That one day we will be made whole, not only in body, right? But in body and in soul. And so here the gospel came to this city, not only in word, but it also came physically to this particular man. And I'm sure Paul was preaching in this crowd and they were listening as he shared the good news. But I think he was also talking about the power of God and maybe the miracles that God had been performing in other places. And maybe he had talked about Iconium, that as they preached the gospel, that God had confirmed that word by granting that through them, signs and wonders be accomplished at their hands. And news like that travels fast. If you're familiar with the books of Acts, you know that this is very similar to Acts chapter 3 where there Peter and John went to the temple, and there they saw a man begging. And he said, would you please give me some money? And the response was, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have in the name of Jesus Christ we give to you, stand up and walk. He got up, he walked, and he went leaping and jumping and praising God. Very similar to that. And while speaking, and, and this is, this, you know, as I was reflecting on this, I, I still kind of wonder what's going on here. But as, as Paul was preaching, he, he all of a sudden fixed his gaze on this man who was looking at him intently. And notice what it says there. He says, seeing that he had faith to meet well, he said in a loud voice, stand up and get on your feet. Loved ones, God has not changed. The God who is amidst in our midst today is the same God that was in the midst of these people 2,100 years ago. I have read the accounts and the arguments of those who put forward a position known as cessationism, who believe that the miraculous gifts that we see in the books of Acts and described in Corinthians are only for the apostolic age. I don't find them satisfying arguments. I don't find them reflecting my understanding of what God continues to do in the church or what God continues to do in his church around the world. I do believe that signs and wonders never confirm a man or a woman. Signs and wonders confirm the word of God. And so when the word of God is proclaimed and preached, there are times when God in his sovereign pleasure confirms that word with miraculous signs and wonders. I believe that God still heals today. I don't know why God doesn't heal everyone. I do know that sometimes there are great lessons for us as his children that we can only learn through times of suffering. But I do know that God is still able to heal today. And I do know that God still heals today. Why does this not happen more in Parksville? Why does this not happen more in PFBC? I'm not terribly sure. But I wonder sometimes if in part it's because we are not really convinced in the power of God to do such things. Notice as Paul is speaking, as he looked out, he looked at this man and something happened. And the way Luke records it, I find fascinating. He says, as he looked at this man, he saw that he had faith to be made well. What does faith look like? If I were to look you in the eye today, how would I know that you had faith to be healed? Obviously, something was transpiring there. And I wonder maybe if, if had Paul had been preaching, he had caught this guy's eye. And, and as it maybe had been talking about the miracles that Paul had been, uh, that, that God had been doing, he saw this guy shifting on his feet and, and, you know, maybe sort of putting his arms down and thinking, well, 
do that for others. He could do that for me. And it was somehow maybe reflected in his eyes and in his body language. Frankly, I don't know. And I wish I knew so that I could do the same thing if God called me to do that. But somehow there was a visible quality to his faith that Paul recognized. And as soon as Paul saw it, he said something to him. Stand up on your feet. Paul gave faith feet. Faith is active. Do we call for this kind of response to faith? Do we call for people to act on their faith? Loved ones, I have to admit, I am very anxious at this point. I don't know how many times I have gathered with elders over the course of my ministry and if we have anointed people with oil and as we have finished anointing them with oil, we pray and then if it is God's will, may you be healed and then we all go away. Not once have I then called for that person that we have prayed for to now act on their faith. I wonder sometimes if we need to act on our faith. It's not passive. Paul asked that man to stand up. Would he have been healed if he just sat there? So I wonder, loved ones, and I just throw this out to you to let your heart work on it. Maybe God is saying to us as a people, not just with healing, but in all areas of our life, I want you to move from a passive faith to a more active faith. Put feet to your trust and your confidence in my promises and in my power. The response of the crowd was almost immediate. They thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods in human flesh, it says. Come down in some kind of design, uh, disguise, and so they determined to um, offer sacrifices to them. And when I first read this quickly, I thought, well, why didn't Paul and Barnabas stop this earlier? Well, then it hit me as I read it more carefully that they lifted their voices in their own language, Lyconium. They didn't know that. And so all they thought was, wow, these guys are pretty excited about what God has done. Oh, let's join the party. And as the party got going, all of a sudden they thought, oh, we don't usually kill oxen for parties. We don't usually put garlands around people for these kind of parties. And it clicked. And they realized these guys thought they were some kind of gods in human flesh. You think, well, how dumb could people be? You know what? We have people today who believe the same stuff. They believe that they are gods. They believe that gods are enfleshed today. And to add to their, um, their, their mythology and their religion, there was a myth going around. And if you have ever read Ovid, um, he has written a book called Metamorphoses. And in that book, he accounts just a, a lot of different myths and stories of, of transformations. But he talks about a particular story that was supposed to have taken place in this area not long before about how two gods, Jupiter and Mercury, who are the Latin words for the Greek god Zeus and Hermes, how they came down in human form and they started traveling through the plateau land of, of this area. And as they were traveling through the plateau uh, land, they knocked on a thousand doors to see if somebody would take them in and give them hospitality for the night. Nobody would until they came to one house of a very poor couple, strangely named Philemon and Bassius, who took them in and let them stay for the night. In the morning, the four of them got up And the two gods took them up to a hillside. And as they turned around to look back over the valley, they noticed that the whole valley had been flooded and everybody had been killed in the valley. 
that the gods had punished the people of the valley for not showing them hospitality. And as a way of showing their, their thankfulness to this couple, Philemon and Bassius, they turned their home into a, a beautiful temple and made them priests and priestess in this temple. So if that is your understanding of culture and God, and all of a sudden two guys come down and now they make somebody walk who couldn't walk, you think, okay, we better honor these guys or we're all going to get killed. Makes sense. They were acting on what they culturally knew. And so Paul and Barnabas step in and they say, no, you can't do that. We don't have a lot of time this morning, but I just will make a couple points and I'll send you back to, to wrestle with this a little bit more. Verses 14, uh, 15 and 16 and 17 are, are this beautiful sermon and response that Paul and Barnabas make to these people. And I, I like the, the sort of the first thing that as they re- deal with these people, they, they don't deal with them in arguments. They deal with them in answers. And I think, loved ones, we need to realize that when we're sharing the gospel with people that they really need answers, not arguments. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes we're terribly quick to jump into an argument with people. And you don't win arguments. You just create walls and barriers. But to try and answer their questions, to try and answer the longings of their heart, to try and respond to their, uh, to the, to the actions that they're doing. These people didn't know any better. This is what they had been raised with. This was their mythology. This was their idolatry. They had never heard about God before. And so Paul took the truth of the gospel and with gentleness gave them answers to the questions that they were asking but had come to wrong conclusions about. And we find this so often in Scripture. I'll just read one. You're familiar with it. 1 Peter 3.15 In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. How we need to learn gentleness and respect. We don't have to seal the deal, loved ones. That's God's business. What we do have to do is present the truth of the gospel with gentleness and respect. Look for opportunities to give answers, not to engage in an argument. The second thing that I also picked up from this particular passage, and I think it's helpful for me, start with start where people are at, not with what you know. There's a big difference there when you're sharing the gospel with people. You may want to do something this afternoon if you have time and uh, in reflecting. You, I'd encourage you to compare Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13 with Paul's sermon here in Acts chapter 14, verses 14 to, to, to 17. In Acts chapter 13, Paul deals with this congregation out of God's word book. Let me give you a little bit of help with that. Charles Spurgeon uh, used to say that God has revealed himself in two ways. Um, I would add a third at least, um, not that I am any way trying to um, say that I know more than Spurgeon, but I believe God has revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ, as well. But Spurgeon would say God has revealed himself to us in his word book. This is what we have, special revelation. The word of God given to us so that we might learn about God, learn about ourselves, and come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so Paul used the word book of God, with the Jewish people to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He talked about the law. He talked about the prophecies. He talked about the history of God's way with his people. 
It was something that the Jews were familiar with and God-fearing Gentiles. They had a background in Scripture. And so when Paul presented the gospel, he used Scripture. But what do you do with people who don't know the Bible? How do you communicate the message of salvation to people who have no background in biblical truth? This is where Spurgeon says, well, then you need to use the world book. The world around us. Natural revelation. Start with where people are at, with what they know to be true, with the world in which they, they, they embrace and begin to find common ground in that world. And from that, then lead them to the gospel. What does Psalm 19 say? The heavens declare the glory of God. What does Romans 1 say? That, 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 that the nature reveals the eternal or the invisible attributes of God. And what was, what is our problem? When we look at nature, rather than seeing a creator behind nature, we start worshiping the creatures itself and creation itself. And we're not thankful for the world in which we live. And so Paul launches off of that and he says to them, no, we are just men like you. We've got flesh and blood just like you. The gods that you worship are idols. Let me tell you about the living God, the one who has created this heavens and this earth. And he has not only made this beautiful world, but he sends rain and he sends it so that our crops might grow and our trees might grow and that we might have food. And so he provides for us. And not only that, he says, he he, he calls us to account and we have to make a response to him. And just the fact that you're not dead today is not the fact that God is indifferent towards your sinfulness. It's the fact that God is patient towards you. And if you're here today and you have continued to reject the gospel and the truth and the author, offer of salvation and you've done this for months, maybe years, and you think, does not matter? I'm still here. I'm still breathing. Don't mistake that for God's indifference. Understand that that is God's patience with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to eternal life in Jesus Christ. So look at those two sermons and compare them. What's amazing to me is, uh, I talked about at the very beginning, an initial, a mixed reaction. We had some people who accepted the word of God and we had some people who persecuted Paul and Barnabas. Well, what happens when you see that in the same person? In the same people, and we see that here. Amazingly, these people quickly turn against Paul and Barnabas now. One moment, they're ready to worship them. And the next moment, they are actually stoning them, assuming that Paul is dead and dragging his limp body out of the city. One wonders if as the stones began to hit his body, Paul didn't jump back to the time when he stood by and watched Stephen being stoned. Later, Paul would write, that once I was stoned. And I'm sure it's got to be a reference to what was going on in this city. I wonder if this is what Paul had in mind also when he wrote, we are struck down, but we're not destroyed. What fascinates me about this story is it's a huge and a perfect illustration of the fickleness of people. How is it that one day they can be ready to worship Paul and Barnabas? And only a few days later, they pick up stones to kill them. One moment, worship. The next moment, attempted murder. We shouldn't be surprised at that. Isn't that what happened with our Lord Jesus Christ? 
One Saturday, he rides into town on a donkey. As we sang this morning, the people in the crowds yelled out, Hosanna! 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 And then only a few days later, seven or eight days later, as they were shouting at the top of their lungs, Crucify him! Crucify him! Loved ones, we are so fickle. We are so emotional. We are so easily turned from one emotion to the other. It's part of our sinful nature. And then lastly, Derby. Very quickly. Amazingly enough, when Paul had been stoned, God, I think, performed somewhat of a miracle and raised him up. And he went back into the city of the people that had stoned him. And he spent the night. And then the next day, he and Barnabas and maybe a group of people made their way from Lystra to Derby, 60 miles away. I have never been stoned. What would his aching body have felt like as he walked those 60 miles? I think discouragement set in his heart and he said, it's not what I bought into. It's not what I hoped for. When God called me to be a, a, a messenger of the light to the Gentiles, I thought everything would go okay. I think it was a gift that God gave him Barnabas. And as they trudged those 60 miles, Barnabas said, okay, Paul, come on. You know the promises of God. You know the example of Christ. You know the call of God. You know that people are lost and dying without the gospel. Let's go get the rest of them for Jesus. And they made that 60-mile journey to Derby. And you get to Derby and you find the essence of what a church is about boiled down into two things. They preached the gospel and they made disciples. One of my favorite preachers is Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg has got so many pithy statements and if you listen to enough of his sermons, you will hear him say more than once this little saying, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. When God wants us to know something, he will make it clear. What does God want us to know from this particular chapter? The heart of what we as a church are to be up to is becoming internally strong by making disciples. Join a growth group. Join a woman's study. Get involved in the youth ministry. Put your kids in the, in the children's ministry. Let them be built up in the things of the Lord. But not only are we to become eternally strong, internally strong, but we're to be externally focused. We need to take the gospel out into our community. Loved ones, if there is anything that I would be impassioned about us doing as a congregation, and if there's a challenge that I would have to us, it's not that we stay warm and comfortable and sit beside the same people every Sunday that we know. I thank the Lord for the family of God. But you know, it's not about us becoming familiar and comfortable. It's about us seeing the kingdom of God expand and grow. And so our challenge, is it not, is to see that everyone in in the community of Oceanside is an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. May God help us to make the plain things the main things and the main things the plain things. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. May God so help us in Jesus' name.